So that's when I sat down and said, okay, if I only had a day or two and nobody, I'd never see anybody again the rest of my life, what would I want to share with them that I'd learned? And, you know, very powerful stuff. Be accountable for where you have put your energy. Call it karma, call it whatever you want. Oh, hey, you're going to eat it. If you've got an incompletion, if you've made some level of commitment that's not complete yet or handled appropriately, you have to pay for that. Not only being accountable for where you have put your creative energy and what you've invested in, but what do you now keep investing in because you can't stop focusing. So you're creating now all the time. How are you organizing that focus so that you're creating stuff with no karma or as little as possible or you know, with as little residue as possible and with as much focus and value as possible? <laughs> so those two things, I said, well, I don't think I could share anything else with anybody else that would make any more difference in terms of what I think would improve their life, their work, their condition. Those two things, if you understand those, if you understand those principles. So again, I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm an informational speaker, letting people know that's what's going on, folks. And if you want this kind of result, I discovered they actually work to give you that space. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values, As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone and you don't have to wait for others. This conversation with David Allen is a wonderful sharing of a creative process that produced getting things done for him. One of the great works, at least for me in my life, it's been a tremendous value. You'll hear the behind the scenes of what it took to make it happen. Not so simple. People who want to write books these days, you'll get a lot of advice online of like, get rich quick, all this stuff. And his was a very different process. You'll hear us comparing that process to Mozart and Van Gogh and people like that. You'll also hear at the beginning how he's important to me, the story of how he and I met about 10 years ago. And I share the advice that he gave me then. And he keeps giving me advice over the course of this conversation that's really valuable. I hope it's as valuable to you as it is to me. Still now, after 10 years, I'm still getting it. You'll also hear much of the value of getting things done from him sharing it. I recommend getting the book and putting it into practice. And I think you'll hear here some of why it's important. So let's listen to David. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with David Allen. David, how are you doing? Uh, fine, Josh. Thanks. And I, as I mentioned, I've got a little bit of hay fever here in Amsterdam. The trees are starting to pop out. And so it it's, kind of goes with the territory. But otherwise, I'm fine. Thank you. Cool. So it's, yeah, it's uh, late April. And I was joking before that the tulips are coming in, I guess. <laughs> as you said that, I looked at my calendar and it says it's 420 and 420 in Amsterdam it feels like a legalized legalization sort of thing, like what's in the air there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So if it's okay, I, I want to start by sharing how we met. Oh, so everyone who doesn't know, uh, David Allen wrote Getting Things Done. It's a book that has changed my life. It's changed many, many people's lives. And uh, it came out, it came out, what, 15 years ago? Let's see, 2001. So it, 17 years. 17 years ago, first edition anyway, yeah. So 17 years ago, and to my knowledge, there's no book that's even tried to replace it. It's like a category killer, it feels like to me. It's like, uh, there's that book to me and uh, Getting to Yes, 
which also begins with getting. I tried to make my book start with getting because I thought it would be like, like getting leadership or something like that <laughs> to try to be in, a, in, a, in this trend of, uh, I mean, is there a book that's gotten close? I feel like you, you really got it. No, a lot of people have sort of created some spin out of it, but nothing to replace it for sure. At least that I know of, no. And so I wanted to start by sharing how you and I met. It was at a, a book release for Marshall Goldsmith. And we were talking and I didn't recognize you from your face. And, and when we were saying, you know, what each of us did, you said you were getting things done. And I said, oh, all my friends told me about this book. So I read it and I told you, I thought, it wasn't that big of a book for me because I felt like I knew my priorities and I thought I did a decent job of doing things in order of my priorities. And so it didn't really make me that much more productive. And you said to me, as I recall, and correct me if, I, if I'm getting it off, but you said they market it as a productivity book, but really it's a book about mental freedom. And you said, I'm a freedom junkie. And I reread the book in the context of mental freedom and it totally changed things. And that's when I started implementing things. And so it's really, to me, much more about mental freedom. How many people get mental freedom versus productivity, or, is it, or, or am I differentiating something that's not really two different things? Oh, no, you're, you're quite accurate. The quick answer is I have no idea how many people get it that way. It was the driver of me both discovering the methodology as well as promoting it. And, you know, the way I frame it now, and I think in the new edition, I, I made that more explicit, but it's not so much about getting things done. It's about being appropriately engaged with your life so that you can be present with whatever you're doing. So it's not so much, yeah, yeah you're right. It, it, so it's the mental freedom to do that, but it's the freedom to be present with whatever you're doing, which happens to be the optimal productive state anyway, because when you're not distracted, you know, and, and when you're fully able to focus 100% of your attention and your, and your focus on whatever it is you're doing. And that's really it, whether that's taking a nap or, you know, writing a business plan or cooking spaghetti, you know, you just, you want to be there. <laughs> so, you know, the, all I did was figure out the algorithm about how you get all the other stuff to quiet down. Yeah, I remember that even after reading the book and even after implementing it for years, I was listening to a few interviews of you not too long ago. And maybe it's something you said a long time before, but you pointed out how innovation or coming up with new ideas or creativity, it's not something that if you schedule more time on your calendar, you'll be more innovative if your mind isn't free. Whereas if your mind is free, even if you don't schedule time, you're going to come up with new ideas. You're going to solve problems. Sure. Well, you know, you know those things don't take time. You know, creative, being creative, you know, having good ideas, you know, being innovative, being strategic, being loving, being present. Those are most people consider those kind of golden goodies in life, uh, and yet they don't take time to do that. But they do require space; they require room. And if you're distracted by two meetings ago this morning, or your head is spinning around things you're worrying about or complaining about, you know you're not going to be. You can't be creative or present or innovative or any of that good stuff. So how do I quiet the noise? And you know, I discovered the algorithm of of how do you quiet the noise without having to finish all those other things, but you do have to appropriately engage with them. It's interesting that you use the terms. You have to have space, you have to have room. And I, I mentally put on the words mental space, mental room. But actually what you do is very physical. And what's the, what's the playoff between mental space, physical space? Well, the one way to think of it is I think you're most creative when you have the ability to make a mess. When you have the freedom to make a mess, well, that's your most creative state. But if you're in a mess, you can't make one. So, you know, uh, you know I'm starting to paint, so... If I don't clean up my brushes, if I don't clean up whatever I'm doing, then it's very difficult. You know, I, I, the barrier of entry is too high for me to get going again. 
you know, I need to clean up. I need to get ready. I need to sort of, as the French chefs would say, mise en place. I need everything in its place before you ring the bell and, and go crazy. But that gives you the freedom to do that. And has your awareness, has your work with your own material changed over the years? It must have in, in 17 years or longer since you started developing it. I mean, are you finding it? Are you getting, are you discovering new things in it? Or is it the same thing that you now as it was before? Yes. To all the above? Well, you know, I, I, there's always a more subtle level or another way to say it or another way to, to understand it or spin it, but the basics are the same. You know, I literally, when I did the second edition in 2015, I literally rewrote the whole book. I just picked up the book and started typing it and said, is this the way I would still say that? And a lot of it's the same. I said, no, that's really good. I can't think of a better way to say it than the way I said it. And the methodology is absolutely the same. Some of the languaging changed uh, because of, uh, you know, a good example. Uh, whereas in the first edition, I talked about uh, collecting as the first step, you know, when, you, when you're sort of gathering all the stuff that's incomplete that, had, that has your attention. In the newer edition, I call it capture. Because collecting is kind of a passive, just whatever's already out there, you know, kind of just, just you know, gathering it up. Whereas capture has a lot more sort of creative expansiveness to it, like capturing ideas about the book you want to write, capturing stuff like that, as opposed to just collecting stuff you've already thought. So it was a more active and more dynamic way to describe it, at least in English, that that way. So capture, uh, and then instead of just processing, I use the word clarify, because it's really about, it's not just, again, a passive thing of just you know, okay, let me put something through a grinder here. It's really getting clear about, well, wait a minute, why did I write that note? And what does that really mean to me? There was, so there's a more dynamic process. And I use, you know, then organizes the same, you know, just structuring things in appropriate categories. And then uh, reflection as opposed to review, because reflection, again, is a broader way to really understand the dynamic of stepping back and seeing things from a higher gestalt or altitude. And then the final thing, you know, was, which was really important was to change doing to engage because doing has such a, okay, work harder, work harder, run faster, you know, sort of a, a sense to it. Whereas engage is a more open way to say, okay, I'm engaged in taking a nap. I'm engaged in listening to you right now. I'm engaged in this as opposed to, you know, running faster, harder, et cetera. So those were you know, those were understanding a better way to explain, you know, perhaps some of the subtleties of what this dynamic is that I uncovered. I think that's the change that happened. So it's interesting. Those are very, they're important changes. They're very subtle changes. And I guess that's, it makes me think of, of one of the things of when I, I feel like when as someone masters an art or an expressive medium or something like that, then they get into those subtleties and you do sound like, um, you're getting these real nuances and subtleties that, that someone who I'm, I'm reading as much passion in your, in what you do now. I don't feel like you're, you sound like someone who, who loves what he's talking about. And I don't feel like you are acting like you do. I feel like you really, this is uh, you're as passionate about it now as you ever have been. Yeah. I, I can't help it. I, I, of <laughs> course I, I tell people I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm not a raw, raw kind of guy. I, I'm not. What I just did was uncover something that happens to be universally dynamic and applies universally to the human condition and the human state. And I couldn't do anything else. Meaning if you only, actually, that was a lot of the driver of how I even began to formulate, uh, you know, when the head of HR at Lockheed asked me back in 1983 to design a, a, a 
could I design a, a training or a seminar material around what I was working with people one-on-one with, with this methodology, you know, because it produced more control, more focus, more accountability, more meaningful space and all that good stuff. He said, God, our whole culture needs that. So that's when I sat down and said, okay, if I only had a day or two and nobody, I'd never see anybody again the rest of my life, what would I want to share with them that I'd learned? And, you know, very powerful stuff. Be accountable for where you have put your energy. Call it karma, call it whatever you want. Call, hey, you, you're going to eat it. If you've got an incompletion, if you've made some level of commitment that's not complete yet or, hand, or handled appropriately, you have to pay for that. And then not only being accountable for where you have put your creative energy and what you've invested in, but what do you now keep investing in because you can't stop focusing. So you're, you're creating now all the time. So, you know, how are you organizing that focus so that you're creating stuff with no karma or as little as possible or, or, you know, with as little residue as possible and with as much focus and value as possible. So it's kind of, so those two things I said, well, I don't think I could share anything else with anybody else that would make any more difference in terms of what I think would improve their life, their work, their condition. You know, those two things, if you understand those, you understand those principles. So again, I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm an informational speaker, letting people know that's what's going on, folks. And if you want this kind of result, you know, I discovered they actually work, you know, to, to, to give you that space. You sound to me like an artist. You know, one of the big driving forces for me was in, in how in developing my material was working with artists and how, uh, working with actors and how actors learn. And the way they talk about preparing for role, the way, or the way that an artist talks about preparing for a new work, it sounds like, you know, what, what am I going to, what emotions am I going to evoke in the observer? And that's what I'm hearing, um, lots of things, but I hear that in you. Is that something that you think about? Has, has, has people commented on that before? Uh, not, not exactly like that. And again, I didn't really go at this trying to figure out how people would relate to it. That said, the exception to that is when I wrote the book, writing it in such a way so that there was a simplic- as simple as I could make it so that I could you know, stop being wordy about something and be more confident in what I was talking about. That's why a good line editor, man, is fabulous. As a matter of fact, when I had a really good line edit, you know, where they, a line editor takes your, your basic galley and takes your, your work and then goes through it and says, as I said, they kind of gave it a bath. You know, what I said in 22 words or tried to say, they said better than I could have said it in 15 words or in 10 words, only they didn't lose my voice. That, that's actually, they actually enhanced my voice. And so in that way, it mattered to me that people that people would get this in the most uh, elegant, simple, obvious, clear way that they could. Whether they bought into it or not or did it, that's up to them. I just said, you know, my job was to make that as clear as possible and as, as, yeah, as clear as possible to whoever was reading this in such a way and being authentic. You know, authenticity is, you can't beat that. And so... You know, of course, you know, I wrote the book after 25 years of thousands of hours you know, doing this stuff. So this wasn't something I sort of made up. What the book was about was really trying to describe the, I guess, elegance and subtlety and power of what it is I'd uncovered. Did I hear you write 25 years? I guess that's a, of a lot of things in life before writing this down. Not a, was that 25 years of specifically working on, on what came out and getting things done? Yeah. Yeah, and wow. I started in 1981, uh, really learning some of the basics of this stuff and starting to work with it, both for myself as well as my, my own, started my own little consulting practice in 1981. So, yeah, I've been working with this material since then. So it, I guess it was well, 81 to, I started writing the book in 90, 98, I guess, uh, 97, 98. 
So for, yeah, for some reason I'd remembered you saying four years. Maybe that was just of the writing part. Yeah, that was the writing part. Uh, that was that was from the time I took my took write book off of someday maybe, and to the time it actually showed up on a shelf. You know, so that was that was a four year process once I once I pulled the trigger on. Well, thank you for sharing that because I think there's a lot of people out there, including myself, who are scared to share ideas because you look at the ideas that are out there in the world, and the, the ones that you pay attention to most tend to be the ones that are really eloquently written and said. And you think, oh, well, the person just wrote it out. But to know that it, it took that time and so forth. And at the beginning, how much of what came out in the book was there early on? Uh, what came out in the book was there early on. Mm, well, I was doing all that stuff. So the book, the reason it took so long to really write the book was the first draft I wrote, which was that, you know, it took a year to just frame the concept and get the deal and get an agent and get a publisher. So that, that was year one. Year two was writing the first draft, but the first draft didn't work. I wrote the first draft like I did a seminar and it didn't work. A book is a very different medium than, you know, stand up live training, you know, and presentation. And, you know, if I had people captive for a day or two, you know, you could always, I could walk them into whatever all this was about because they were sort of captive, but a book doesn't hold somebody captive. You have to sort of, attract them to be into it in little bursts of time or in their own timing or in their easy chair at night or whatever. It's a very different medium and it just didn't work. So I went through the dark night of the soul, you know, agonizing about why, why, why? Because there were three things I wanted to do with the book. One is I wanted to give people the methodology itself. I wanted them, you know, two is I wanted, if they really wanted to implement this, I wanted to give them the detail how to, you know, if they wanted to implement it. And then you know, most importantly, I wanted to people to catch the, oh, by the ways, you know, the subtleties and the power of what this thought process is when it's applied, you know, to your life and your work. And so somehow in a seminar, I could blend all that in, you know, and in presentation mode, but I couldn't do it in the book. You know, people would start reading the book. They say, well, okay, well, you know, you, you got me in the first paragraph, but then, you know, how to do it was three, three chapters later. And they, it was frustrating to them. I went, well, that has to work. So my big aha, the big epiphany was, okay, write it in three parts. So I wrote part one. If you just want the methodology, read part one. It just goes through the whole thing, you know, kind of blow by blow, gives you the blueprint of what the methodology is. Part two is, and oh, by the way, if you actually want to go implement this, let me walk you through the real how-tos, the nitty-gritties of that. And then part three is the oh, by the way. And so I just wrote it in three parts, and that worked. But that took another year. I literally threw away the first draft. It just didn't work. So I started again. <laughs> so it took, took another year to write the, the, the draft that then came out as a book. And then it took the final year to get the look and feel right, to get the title right. Man, I got 400 used titles, I'll say. <laughs> I mean, to try to find out how to frame this and who this was going to be targeted toward. You know, and th at that time, it was the fast track professional. You know, so that took the final year to get, get kind of get all that in place and in play. Anyway, longer answer than what you asked about, but that's the story. I hope people listening, if they're thinking about sharing ideas and, and developing materials and so forth, you know, I talked about how you and I met and over the past couple of years, things like what you were just saying helped me tremendously because I was writing my book. I didn't take four years to do it. Now I'm thinking maybe I, I tried to get out too quickly. But when I started writing, man, the online marketing world is insane of everything's like, oh, you know, we'll build your mailing list and do all the stuff like overnight and just buy this thing and everything, blah, blah, blah. And I got sucked into it. And I would speak to you maybe a couple times a year, I guess. And you would sit, tell me about your story. And I thought, 
that would really keep me grounded. And that process for me and your sharing of it was an antidote to a lot of that crazy market speak with all the people who were, I don't know. I mean, I guess there's a lot of them who sell a lot of books, but not necessarily change people's lives. Yeah. You know, I ran across one of those people who wrote a lot of those books and he saw me in the airport and said, David, how do you, how do you keep your book so high up on Amazon? I said, it's a good book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he kind of laughed because uh, I really never did any marketing. I mean, it's a very little marketing that, that Penguin, the, the, the publisher did, you know, for it. It just, you know, kind of spread by word of mouth. And, you know, there, there, even back then, and this is 2001, there, there were over 400 book titles, you know, over a thousand business book titles published every year. And just in the U.S., that's three a day, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- there's an awful lot of stuff out there. So I guess to, to stay alive amidst all the noise of all that stuff that's written, it, you need to, it needs to be good, you know, and it needs to be real stuff. And if it is, I think it probably has a life of its own you know, and, and will. But getting, you mentioned getting, yes, by the way, same folks publish them as published me. And, you know, when I first had conversations with Penguin, they said, David, don't hold your hopes up that immediately this may be a bestseller. If it's as good as we think it might be, you know, sometimes it takes two to three years for this to cook, you know, in the marketplace. But if it works, it'll hang in there. Well, that's given me hope for mine. I mean, I have decent sales, but I hope it, well, that's my stuff. Uh, although it's also, you know, my that perspective is helping me a lot with the leadership in the environment podcast because this is something I feel deeply passionate about. And I think I'm gonna, I think I'm bringing in something that's missing and valuable, and I'm trying to optimize things as best I can. But I'm I'm spending a lot more time on developing my material and the delivery and how I work with people than in you know in in these conversations than on the marketing and trying to like get the most number of subscribers and stuff like that. And to me, it feels like a much more, I don't know, wholesome, authentic, genuine way of working. And if it doesn't work, I'm, I love what I'm doing. I can't imagine looking back at regret of, at working this way of developing a passion of mine. You, like when you talked about rewriting the book, I'm thinking he retyped every single word. And then I thought, if you're an artist and you're making a work of art, you don't get the graduate student to do it for you. <laughs> You don't like just edit an old one. You love what you do. Yeah. And, you know, now again, living in Amsterdam, all kinds of interesting stuff that they've, you know, new scientific ways to be able to see how many versions of a painting the the masters did and how they kept changing it and doing it differently and whatever. And, you know, what didn't just flow out, you know, in the immediate form. Yeah. You got to work it. You know, I've, I've read stuff about Mozart because people say he would just write a symphony and that doesn't seem to be the case. And I'm curious if you know more about what you just said about, I'm really curious, is that just something you casually know about or? No, well, if you go to the Van Gogh Museum, I mean, you know, Van Gogh was, he was not just a crazy, a crazy artist. He was actually one of the most rigorous students of art. And he did so many self-portraits because that was a way you, you know, you couldn't afford a model. So he had to practice that and he would do them on top of another one. And, and, and he just did so many, you know, things like that. And there are other artists they find, I can't remember, you know, recall it right now, but that, that, you know, discovered, oh, they, you know, Rembrandt painted over some of his stuff, you know, like he originally had an arm there, but they, he changed it. And, uh, you know, I, oh, I was just at the, at the Hermitage Museum in, in St. Petersburg in Russia. They have a number, numerous Rembrandts there. 
And one of them was one that they had discovered that he'd changed, you know, the, the whole position of somebody out there, you know, in the painting. Anyway, you know, I don't, I don't think that's uncommon. Huh. So they're x-raying these things and looking at like using some sort of new technology to find what's underneath. Yeah. Yeah. They can, they can x-ray that stuff in, in new ways now. Yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. I find it very fascinating. And to me, liberating because it tells me I don't have to be perfect at the beginning. I know this in theory, but the more I hear about it, the more it's easy to put it in practice because what it translates to in me is anxiety and fear of judgment, I guess. And to know that, you know, Rembrandt wasn't perfect at the beginning, not to say perfect isn't the right word, but, you know, it took him a while to find his voice and to find, to make things work. That's very satisfying to hear, very um, liberating, I guess. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think there's any, you know, maybe Mozart was an exceptional, you know, but that was probably previous lifetimes. He they developed all that and he sort of came in to finish his stuff, who knows. Uh, but almost any artist that's worth their salt, you know, pays their price. I'm guessing you learn from, you learn from writing, you learn from revising, you learn from delivering your material, you learn from people coming back to you. It's all these different things. I would guess. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Well, no, for, for sure. I mean, I don't know that everybody's wired that way, but I learn by writing. I mean, I learn a lot about what I know by expressing it. Well, I'd also think that the delivery and the listening to your, the, I mean, you work one-on-one with a lot of people. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Oftentimes I don't know what I know until I, somebody brings it out of me. And then, you know, in the situation, I go, well, that's really good. Let me keep that in my act. <laughs> you know, that certainly that happened a lot in my seminars. You know, I'd just be up there and I'd just be waxing poetic or whatever about something. I go, wow, that's an interesting way to say that. Let me let me remember that. So it would come out, but I had to engage. In other words, I had to engage. I had to start expressing. I had to. I, I couldn't just sit there and ruminate about it internally in my head. Every once in a while, it happened that way, but for the most part, you know, a lot of what I learned was simply by engaging you know, with people and sharing the information as best I knew it then. And then having it, getting, getting, having it refined by that kind of feedback in the world. So even if your material isn't ready, maybe oftentimes some of the best ways to make it ready is to put out what you can and use that to refine or iterate. iterate. Yeah, it's the old software agile stuff. Ship, ship, ship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I can certainly say easier said than done. I know when I first started thinking about doing this podcast, I thought, okay, I'm going to do a podcast. And then I would record and record and record, but I wouldn't put it out. And I knew what I was doing, and I knew I shouldn't do it that way. Or I knew that I would benefit more. Things would happen faster if I just put it out there. And I would just keep recording without sharing. And there's months and months and months of recordings without before I put it out. And then now I look back and I was like, oh, man, I, I could have improved faster. I get caught in my own trap. Or how do I put it? I catch myself not following advice I know to follow. Yeah, well, perfectionism, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the curse and the blessing. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So I'm going to switch topics here for a bit because we, you know, the title of the podcast is Leadership in the Environment. Mm -hmm. And we've been talking, I feel like we've been talking a lot about leadership or one, I feel like one part of leadership. And 
How about the environment? Is it something, is the environment something that you care about? Is it, is it a, is it a big deal for you? Uh, yeah. I mean, can we just saw the news story of the whale that just died oh. washed up on the beach, you know, with, with like 30, 30 tons of plastic in its stomach, you know, come on. And, you know, so that kind of stuff is just, I don't know, just dramatic. I mean, there are a lot of things that could, could create drama, you know, just look at any, look at any page of the newspaper, you know, then you, you could get wrapped around that, you know, axle pretty tight. And so I think it's pick your battles, but that's one, you know, Hey, Catherine, my wife and I, you know, have always done the best we could to recycle, keep things clean, you know, not add trash to the universe. You know, when we, when we pick up dog poop, I, I tend to pick up whatever the litter is around as well. <laughs> to, <laughs> to do that. And so there's, you know, so we've got a consciousness about that. I can't say that we're really, you know, totally invested in going, spending a whole lot of money and spending a whole lot of time with environmental, you know, um, issues and organizations, but we, we just do our part as best we can. I I couldn't help but think, as you said, picking up the dog poop. Actually, it's funny that the dog poop is actually in the long run. If there's a pile of dog poop and there's a, a plastic container, the dog poop, I think we feel more gross about, but the plastic is going to be around for hundreds of years longer. <laughs> it's true. It's actually more dirty in some sense. Yeah, it, no, and I, I just read some, they by accident discovered, you know, some sort of chemical formula or whatever that dissolves plastic back into plastic again, but at least you could recycle it. Yeah, I saw that too. I was, it, one of the things that gives me hope, I'm usually not so big on technology because I think of, I don't know if, you know, if you've heard of Jevons paradox, it's this no. pattern that happens a lot that when people make, something that uses up a resource more efficient, like they make a more efficient motor or they make more efficient light bulbs. A lot of times people will use the new thing so much more than the old thing that you actually use more. So the classic example, I think Jevons himself talked about this hundreds of years ago, was that when they made a steam engine more efficient, it used less coal, but people use so many more steam engines that they use more coal than ever before. And that's continued you know, through to, to today. Interesting, yeah. And which is why for me, it's that's why I focus on leadership and not just technology, because if we don't change the beliefs and the goals driving the system, then making a system more efficient doesn't necessarily, I mean, you may end up with a, a, a bigger scale Jevons paradox. There's another challenge that when you mentioned you've spent years changing, like doing what you can, you and your wife, it often makes a challenge that the people who are the most thoughtful and have been and the most active sometimes have the biggest challenge of, uh, the next thing I ask is given that you do care and that what I heard was stuff that was emotionally laden and meaningful to you. I mean, you don't like the situation with the whale, but it's, I heard that it affects you. I ask, I invite you at your option, if you want to, to take on a challenge to act on one of the values, but something that you haven't, that you're not already, the few constraints that I put on it are that it's, uh, the big one is you don't have to fix all the world's problems all by yourself overnight. So it doesn't have, you know, it can be small and something that you're not already doing and something that's not telling other people what to do. A lot of people have something in mind that they've kind of been thinking about for a while that they haven't done, but they were thinking about trying out. Some people, it takes a little, a little back and forth. Yeah. I think you had mentioned that to me before when we were talking about me, me doing this podcast with you. And I have to say, Joshua, I'm still kind of grappling around with, okay, what could I, what could I do? I mean, we, we have a car, uh, gave that up when we moved to Amherst because we didn't, didn't need it. And we feel really great about not adding to that. You know, we bike and walk or take the, the tram, you know, everywhere. And, and the, all the tram, all the, all the trams and trains in the Netherlands now are, are being driven by wind power. 
you know, they, that, they passed that, that hurdle last year, I think. So, you know, we, we sort of live in an, an environmentally conscious place, you know, to a large degree. I think probably, whew, you know, I, I, what, what, what could I do? Now, I'll point out that a lot of people think, they hear environment and they think global warming, which is one aspect of environment. So there's a lot of other ones too. Sure. So I don't know if that opens things up. Um, well, give me some examples, you know, help poke me a little bit. Well, I mean, close to what you were talking about before is what, what switched me from giving talks on the environment to the, the podcast was a student of mine who picked up a habit of mine. So I, every day I pick up one piece of trash, at least one piece of trash per day and put it in a garbage can. So that's not lowering the amount of garbage. It's just collecting it in one place. But, you know, one of the things I found is that it's not the size or scope of what someone does. It's if they act, because once you do little things, then the big things open up and it's men. I knew there was garbage around New York City, but it didn't connect me with, it's really changed a lot of my perspective. And actually that student of mine, he, he went on to, he decided to pick up 10 pieces of trash per day and at the end of, for a month. And at the end of the month, he wrote back and I wrote an ink story about it, publishing his email about it because he went from that to changing eating habits, to looking at noticing how people say one thing and do another and really getting into values. Uh, some people reduce their meat consumption for a temporary period of time. Uh, some people, let's see, what are some other things? You already mentioned oh, travel. Okay, I, I got what I'll do. Okay. Is, is be, uh, I will be a lot more conscious when I, when I order and eat fish that it's a sustainable fish. Because I, I haven't paid a whole lot of attention to that. So it's kind of like an issue that you knew about but didn't really act on? Is that what I'm reading? Right. I'm glad you put it that way because, or I'm glad that I got that right because uh, that's a really big thing is that it's a perspective that I think a lot of people have in, like, in the back of their minds. Like, I want to do X, but uh, whatever, I'll think about something else. And what I can't say is how you'll respond when after it happens. And that's what I'm really curious about. But I hope that uh, people learn from your experience of, oh, if I make something more conscious and act on it, then, well, the way you described the car, that you said it feels great. And I think that's why you're, I'm hearing a positive look at things you could do. It was hard to come up with something, but you sounded positive about it. I think a lot of people think, Doing something environmental is a distraction. I don't, you know, I got other things to do. For me, no, I just, I just made a note: sustainable fish. So as soon as I get off with you, I'm going to surf the web and find out where they are. Of course, I live right here on the North Sea, and you know, seafood is fabulous and pretty plentiful, you know, here in, in Amsterdam. Uh, but I'm not sure which is which and whether it makes a difference. But I'll find out. Awesome. And how long do you think would be? I like to go from okay. So now that we have the idea, and I like to get into a little bit more management than leadership and. How long do you think would be a, a good amount of time for you to have this stick or have something to report back of how it went? Yeah. Um, gee, I don't know. A month or so? We'll see. Because we okay. eat out a lot and I eat out a lot. So, um, and we love fish. So, yeah, it won't be hard to start to notice. At least noticing and being conscious, I think that's a lot of your point. Is like, hey, you know, open the filter, open the radar start to notice and pay attention to that. So, uh, yeah, just adding that sensitivity and saying how much difference does it make? How many different changes might I have made in my, in my choice about what to eat at a restaurant based mm -hmm. upon that? So probably a month from now. So I'm getting out my calendar and 
would you be up for scheduling another conversation to talk about the experience? Sure. Why not? Okay. So I'm looking, today's April 20th. So I'm looking at May 20th, which happens to be a Sunday. I think I'll be traveling in Australia then. So a little after that would be useful. Try six weeks. Okay. So, well, the, the week of May 21st is pretty open for me. So if I look at May 27th, May 26th, and hopefully not too far out for you to schedule. Uh, no, I would just have to look. So hang on. I feel like I'm talking to someone who knows how to schedule. Uh, Sunday, May 27th is open. That's cool. Okay. So if you'll be back in Europe, then I presume my morning is better. Yep. So today we started at 10 a.m. my time. Would that be work for you the same time on the 27th? Yep. Okay. So after we hang up, then you'll get the, I'll send you an invitation, the calendar invitation. Cool. I like to close with asking, is there anything I didn't ask that is worth bringing up or that came up and that we didn't get to talk about? Uh, gee. Oh, well, uh, just FYI, if you didn't know, we have a next GTD book coming out July 7th, I believe. It will hit the new hit the bookstores, which is getting things done for teens, staying focused in a distracting world. So I've co-authored that with two guys. They did the major heavy lifting on this because one of them is a parent who's raised his kids using the GTD process. Another is a public school teacher who's been teaching his kids GTD in the public schools in, in Minneapolis. So that's kind of cool. There's been a, people have been knocking on our door for years. They say, oh my God, I wish I'd learned this when I was 12. And oh my God, do you have something for, for my kids? You know, they need to be able to get out from under this. I just met a woman, by the way, whose son is 11, who has 500 WhatsApps a day. So if you can imagine, the kids are getting, you know, they're exploding out there, you know, at much younger ages than we ever thought, you know, that would happen. So anyway, so that's, a, that's cool. So that's a kind of a completion that's, that's going to happen there. So there's an FYI. That's fantastic. I'm really glad to hear that, partly because my niece's bat mitzvah is coming up in a couple of weeks and I'm, I'll, I'm going to tell her, do you, can I pre-order it? I, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Go to Amazon, pre-order. Okay, getting great. things done for teens. Yeah. So now... All my nieces and nephews, I know I'm getting them. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And I'll, yeah, I'm going to read it myself too, because I'm curious what the difference is between teens and adults is. I've had some adults read the galley of it and go, oh my God, this is, gives you actually a spin they didn't have before. Because the book talks about the amygdala and the, and the forebrain, uh, the two different you know, things that are pulling on kids. And you know, the amygdala is going to be into fight, flight, fear, you know, a uh, uh, bright bauble, whatever, distraction, whatever. And the forebrain is the one that can, can take control of, the, of that other part if it wants to do that. So that was framing a, a little bit of sort of the brain tech, you know, uh, for but putting it in kids' terms. So that's cool. That's actually, the book was written actually for kids and for caring adults. So it's for the teachers and counselors and, and parents and, and ministers and, you know, the people who, who have teens under their, under their wing or under their uh, purview and, and care about that and, and, you know, want them to, to have this. So it's as much for them as it is for the kids themselves. So it goes up to any age. How, how young does it go? Well, it was targeted really, the, you know, 13 to 19, you know, in terms of teens. But, you know, they're, as you know, there are kids that are eight or nine that are thinking like adults already. So you know, anybody could probably get value out of it at any age. But that that was that's kind of the language and the and the examples and that are used and they're like getting your driver's license and are you ready for the next test? Are you ready for college? Are you ready to graduate? Are you ready for the prom? Are you ready? So you know, it takes it takes the idea of are you ready to 
you know, get your act together. You know, are you, are, are you ready to optimize this kind of experience? And those experiences, they, they, you know, pretty much picked from that age group. Well, thank you for sharing that news. I'm looking forward to it now. And plus now I don't have to worry about what to get my niece. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay. Oh, uh, and one last note, when something that I say to a lot of people after they take on a challenge is I, I bring up the biggest challenges that I've heard from people after they've done uh, theirs, which is travel and other people. That when people travel, it becomes, that's one place where their environment, they have less control over their environment. And so I think absent preparation, some people feel like they want to give up when they hit a challenge. And so I try to tell them, you know, prepare for this. Expect that some people respond by saying, I will, no matter what it takes, I will stick with my challenge. Some people say, you know, I'll relax. Sometimes it's not so easy and I'm not going to give up. I'll just, you know, bounce back from whatever you know, you'll be at some, if you happen to be at some place and there's no way you can possibly find out about the fish, but there's no option or other people, you know, sometimes people with a food type thing, you'll go to visit someone and they'll say, here, I've got you your favorite thing or my favorite thing. And you're kind of stuck eating something that you weren't going to. And how do you handle a situation like that? So I try to prepare people for eventualities like that, not inevitable, but often happen. Yeah. Guilt doesn't serve anybody. Yeah. So that's something to think about and to prepare for and to handle one of the things that will probably come up. Okay, I'll, I'll deal with it if I find myself having to eat the fish and chips, you know, on the corner of somewhere <laughs> simply to, to stay sane and to, and to keep myself moving. So, yeah, thanks. Okay, thank you very much. And I look forward to talking to you in about a month and change. Sure thing, Josh. In most cases, I'd like a little more specificity in the smart part of a smart goal. But David, I know, has done so many things and gets things done that I didn't have to go into so much specificity. I'm confident that when we listen to him the next time that he will have done this and taken it to heart and so forth. If you're working on a big project, a big leadership project, a big creative project, like writing a book, giving a speech, things like that, I recommend learning from his example of how he wrote his book. It's been very successful. He didn't follow the get-rich-quick advice that I hear so much these days. How do you make a book successful? Write a good book. So I hope that you get things done in the way that David got his things done when he wrote Getting Things Done. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse. And living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference. And living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.